All right, if I say these names, uh, Buzz, Woody, Rex, and Andy's bedroom, uh, even if, yep, that's right. I know there's no kids in here, but grownups, don't act like you don't know this. Toy Story, right? All right, that's Toy Story. You got that in your brain. And, and what's in your brain? Close your eyes. What are you picturing? Is it, uh, is it an old Western? Because I just said Woody, like Rex, that doesn't make sense. What's in your brain? Real life animation? What are we looking at? Animation, right? You got that in your brain. You got the vivid colors. You got that. You might have even been transported to a scene, made you laugh a little bit. Now you're back with me. All right, thank you. Uh, if I say the Mandalorian, Baby Yoda, and Tython, what's in your brain? We just switched, right? We just switched up. And, and your brain has a whole different, like, you might be thoroughly confused. You're like, I have no idea what any of that is. Uh, others of you just got teleported, like Caden, to a whole different world with a smile on your face because you're hoping I'm about to show a clip. I'm not. I know, right? I didn't know kids were going to stay. Otherwise, totally would have done that for you. But you're transported to a world. You see things in your brain, even if it's just the commercial or those uh, annoying little baby Yodas that everybody's carrying around. Something came to mind. If I say the war for independence, your brain might go back. History books, dusty, uh, thinking through the setting, the scene, maybe a field trip. Uh, but then if I say, but what about Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and 1776. All of a sudden, those same characters that you just thought about, heard about, are singing, and they're all black. Like, it's amazing, right? That just flipped in a second when I gave you a different little connotation to that for the musical. And hopefully, I've hit everyone's taste in movies, because we went from kids' movies to sci-fi to musicals. And if you're not covered in there, you're probably not human. Sorry. Uh, but we're glad you're here. Here's what I, I want to point out. With what we're doing in the story of God, when we're looking at the different snapshots along the way, Genesis 1 and 2 have been setting up the main characters of the story that we're learning. And it's meant to take you and allow you now to enter into the stories as they come, knowing a few things that are basic to each and every telling of the story. Uh, first, we've learned that God is a good God, that God does what is good, right, and true, that God is a creator, that he forms things, stars, sun, earth, land, animals, humans, all created by his word, by his power. And then we've learned that this world is not, a, it's not a terrible place. It's not a bad place, but it's a good place. That he's created it good with lots of blessing in it. He's blessed creation over and over and over again. That fundamentally this world is not something to be destroyed, but something to be cultivated. We've learned that Adam and Eve, as these first humans, were put in creation with the purpose of working with God to cultivate the hidden potentials of his creation. They were not slaves for a foreign deity, but they were co-laborers in a work that God had given them. And this is all being built up so that when we hear these words going through the rest of the story, our mind goes to the right kind of story. Our mind goes to the right way the Bible's defined these characters to take place. Because otherwise, we do something as goofy as entering into Toy Story, thinking the Mandalorian characters are going to be there, and they're all singing like Hamilton. And you'll be confused. But God's laying out, this is who you are. This is where you are. This is who I am. This is the sort of God I am. You might have heard a million other things about me. A million other stories about where you came from. A million other reasons that you should be around. But this is what I want to tell you is the true story of the world. Remember, who's Moses writing this story to? Israel. All right. I can tell you're all giggling behind your masks. Um, 
Israel. Remember, he's writing to them after they'd come out of Egypt. They, they were under oppression for 400 years, having been forced to worship other gods, uh, the Egyptian gods. They'd been distant from being able to worship the God of the Bible the way they wanted to, and they had to be reintroduced to God. And so he's laying out a history for the people of God so they can be formed as the people of God in such a way that they're a blessing to the whole world. And he's gone back to the beginning. That's where we're at. And we're just covered the first little bit of that story. And this is the part of the story where if you've been tracking so far, everything sounded good, didn't it? Like, like there was beauty, there was joy, there was delight, there was hidden potentials, there was unfound things that they got to discover. God is this good God who comes alongside of them in the cool of the day to teach them the best possible way to live. He's given them all these fruit, all this animal, all this work, all this creativity. Their marriage is actually working. Like there's a lot of good going on in this world. And you're like, man, that must be sci-fi because that doesn't look like the world I live in today. And if you might have a question, why is that? We're about to find that out. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Genesis 3. Like I said, I'll have it on the screen and we'll just walk through it. Um, this is actually using the, the message version, which is what the kids are learning from today as well, um, because it tells the story in a little bit smoother language, uh, though you, whatever version you have, you're welcome to read along in as well. Let me go ahead and read. The serpent was clever, uh, more clever than any wild animal that God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, the serpent here is not named. Uh, there's been a lot of projection on who it is, what it is. Uh, what we know about the serpent from this story as we enter it is that he is against the ways of God and he wants to lead humans in that same way. Uh, he clearly wants to destroy God's good creation and he's there able to enter in from a very crafty place to try to pull humans away from their loyalty to the true God. He doesn't straight up lie, but he asks the question to get into her mind and gain an audience. Uh, and then the same thing that happens often, right? Like sin gets into your brain as a question that you start to ask and think about and hovers in there for a little while. But we'll keep reading. The women said to the serpent, uh, no, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it or even touch it or you'll die. If you remember from reading back a little bit, God never said they couldn't touch the tree. He said they could only not eat of it. Uh, that was a true statement. And he did say the day of you eat of it, you will die. And so whereas like much has been made of, why does she add to what God says? She makes him seem more oppressive and controlling than he was a caretaker when he said, hey, I'm protecting you. I don't want you to eat of this. Like you wouldn't say, hey, Kevin, you're a really junky dad. Why don't you let your kids run in the street? Like, well, because I know that they'll get hit by a car. Some of them have. Just a little bit though. It's a different story for a different day. Just a little bit hit by a car. Um, but I told him not to run. Uh, that was his true statement. Uh, why do we tell kids not to run? Because there, there's something preventative, something I know as a dad. I care about you. I love you. I don't want you to do this thing. And so I want to lay this, this different hedge of protection around this place. Don't go near that. Don't eat of that. Because when you do, something devastating will happen to you. But Eve, in her words, makes God seem even a little bit more controlling. He won't even let us touch it. Let's keep reading. And the serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment that you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. He says, 
God is holding back from you. There is a better life to be had outside of his reign. Humans, doubt God. He does not have your best interest in mind. There is a better way to live. You can be more fully God yourself, determining what's right and wrong. Reach out, grab that fruit. God's holding back from you. And when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything, she took it and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband, and he ate. The story is going to go on from there, but I want us to pause and stop here for just a second because the serpent's three-step advertising campaign is the same exact one that he uses today. Uh, This is the same exact way that he draws towards temptation. And hear this, uh, fam, I'm going to say this from the jump. Uh, We can not give in to temptation. Like, that's an option. Like, just because the enemy tempts, just because something tries to defer and pull you away from God does not mean that you have to do it. So hear that. Uh, There are ways to walk in holiness and justice and peace, especially now that we have Jesus and the Spirit with us. So if we're entering into this and you're like, ah, first humans got it wrong, all humans for the rest of the story are going to get it wrong, I'm just going to give in and say whatever. Hear this. We don't have to give in to temptation. But when we do, it's very likely that these same three things have happened to us. A first thing, did God really say? He's holding back some key experiences of what it really means to be human. Think about it. In your own brain, as you've gone through this week, has there been moments where you felt that same thing? God, there's something you're holding back from me. Like, like there is good out there. Like there's something more that I want, something more I could have, something more I could experience. And if I did, man, then I'd really be fully human. Then I'd really be somebody. It's the same lie that makes us overspend, that makes us have frivolous sexual encounters. There's something more out there for you. The second thing, And it's what you don't have that will really give you a good life. Doubt God and be dissatisfied with what you have. It's the Amazon marketing algorithm, right? You did not know this thing existed five seconds ago, but because of your search two weeks ago, they're going to pop this in your feed right now. And they're going to tell you, you need this. And all of a sudden you're dissatisfied with that thing that you own that you were very happy with and you want a newer version of it. I mean, the same thing can happen with spouses, but, but purchasing seems a little bit more, you know, nice. We doubt God's intentions for us. We become dissatisfied with what he's given us. And the enemy just kind of lets, he doesn't force her to take it, right? He doesn't hold a knife to her throat. He doesn't whip his bangs out and come after. He's just like, I'm going to let that sit until it stirs in her mind long enough and she sees the fruit and it's tasty and she wants to reach out and grab it. And then she eats it. And she gives it to her husband, Adam, who's there with him, standing complicitly silent as his wife is tempted by the serpent. I'm going to give us a second to have a conversation because you guys have been listening to me for a little while. Um, Where this week did you see something like this pattern work itself out? So think back over your week, and it could literally be uh, whatever it is, because there's moments where we feel tempted. There's moments where we want to go towards... um, Yeah, whatever that is. Like all of us face temptation every single day and there should be a million different things. Identifying that you've been tempted does not mean that you've done something wrong. This isn't even confessing sin where you might've given in. Like I'm not even asking that part. Where did you see something that looked like this advertising campaign from the enemy this week? Uh, Turn to a few people around you and see if you can identify, oh, 
I can see where that was taking place for me this week in this conversation, this marketing campaign, this thought pattern I was having as I was driving in a different zip code, whatever it is. So turn towards a few people around you. Where did you see uh, the enemy tempting you to want, doubt God's intentions, to be dissatisfied with what you have, or to make a decision in that direction? You're welcome to confess, and we're free to do that. God's merciful. We love each other, but you don't have to. Um, turn towards each other. I'll give you three, four minutes to talk about that, and then I'll pull us back in and see what happens in the story. Why do we bring this up? Why does it seem like Christians always need to come back to the sin thing? Uh, the word sin isn't even used here, and we've been using it. Uh, why do we have to keep coming back to that there's a good God and we rebel against him? Because it fundamentally stands at the baseline of who we are as humanity in God's world, wounded as it is, we have to realize that none of us is neutral. Like, like we all live in the wake of this moment that took place long ago. Uh, you might not believe God's story, but if you do, if you say God's story is true, then this moment is one that sets ripple effects out throughout creation and all of time. Uh, this moment is one that helps us make sense of the cross that we come to. It's kind of a big deal in Christianity. Uh, without this moment, it doesn't make as much sense, but we'll keep going. This pattern's important to realize when we start to find ourselves doubting God or being dissatisfied, uh, to realize that it's probably empty, the enemy trying to pull us away. Uh, this pattern, ongoing pattern is why we over-leverage ourselves, we eat too much food, why we overwork or why we're lazy, it's why we watch too much TV, and it's why we chase short-term sexual experiences and instant fulfillment across the board. This is the pattern that is laid into the DNA of this world. So what happens in the story? Let's keep reading. Uh, immediately, verse 7, the two of them did see what was really going on. They saw themselves naked. And we talked about last week, that wasn't just a fashion statement on what was going on in the garden. This is saying that instantly they realized and recognized uh, something had changed. They'd been naked all along, but now they saw that as something for shame. And you could spend many, many hours in therapy unpacking what that means. But I'm just going to say it's there. They sewed together fig leaves as makeshift clothes for themselves. Immediately after sinning, they try to save themselves. Do you catch this? This wasn't like days, weeks, years later. Immediately after breaking God's good creation, they immediately take some fig leaves, which if you've ever seen these suckers, they're, they're big leaves, so they were wise, right? They didn't just take blades of grass. I was hiking down in the Grand Canyon, and when you get down to the Grand Canyon at the base of it, right before Phantom Ranch, there's this massive fig tree uh, with these big old leaves. And I don't know why, but after a long hike down, clearly you're thinking Genesis 3 in the Bible. And so I was like, oh, I wonder what these feel like. And I reached out and felt it. I was like, that's really rough. That was my takeaway. Fig leaves are really rough. Big coverage, really rough. Immediately, they try covering them. Sorry. Immediately, they try covering themselves. Verse 8. When they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. Look up at me. This, this is key. When they realized they had made a decision and instantly at a soul level, things shifted disintegration, what had only been peace, what had only been harmony, what had only been joy, what had only been curiosity, instantly became shame and blame. Disintegration, peeling apart those relationships that God had put together. They take creation that they were supposed to cultivate and try hiding themselves with it. 
Uh, they, between themselves, find some distance and shame. Internally, they know that they're not quite right anymore. Something has shifted because of what they've done. And then at the ultimate of that, when God comes walking, God, who has only done what is good, right, and true, this whole story, who gave them a creation, gave them each other, gave them this world, gave them the stars, the sun, the flavors, the experiences, the sensations, all these things that were good. When he comes walking, all of a sudden, that proximity of God led them to a place of fear and hiding instead of something to press towards. They rebelled against God's good reign and it did something to them and did something into creation. The irony of this, or maybe not irony, but the reality is that still today, don't we often try to continue hiding ourselves when we feel that we've done something wrong? When we feel the ripple effects of this moment and shame, when we know that we've messed up, our same response, whether we're young kids who run and hide in a closet because we've done something wrong, or adults who move to a different room and hide in front of a TV because we've done something wrong, or we spend more money and we numb ourselves, we put up some false bravado, I have it together, I got my stuff together. Meanwhile, inside, we're like, no, I don't, no, I don't, I hope nobody notices. Some of us use our religious activity to hide ourselves. Our fig leaves come with, you know, cross emblems on them. And so I'm going to behave really, really well. And maybe that will make it seem like there's nothing wrong with me. I'll act well in church settings. I'll serve others. And maybe by doing that, I'll make myself right again. let those sit for just a second. I won't have you turn towards each other, but would you listen to your own heart and just ask, what is it that maybe the Spirit is pressing in on you right now? What is it that you turn to in order to hide yourself when you don't turn to God? Let that question linger. We've all built up different ways that we do this. Every single one of us, from, from the front of the room on out to anybody online, whoever's in the sound of my voice, like this is something humanity does. And if we're able to recognize when the enemy's coming at us or when we ourselves are trying to save ourselves, it'll make it a lot quicker to turn back to Jesus. I want to say one more thing. Hear, hear this. They, they actually were guilty, though, right? Like, so, so the shame piece that something was wrong, guilt, I did something wrong. They had done something wrong. Like, they should feel guilty. Like, they, they had eaten the fruit that God told them not to eat. They had brought death into this world. That had happened, right? That was already there. Uh, they had done this, so they should rightly feel like there's right and there's wrong. They had done something, so there is guilt. Guilty feeling is not bad. It's an acknowledgement that something is not the way it was supposed to be, and it's because I did something. Like, that's a good feeling. That's a God-given gift for us to know. The shift of that is when it becomes shame from I did something wrong to I am something wrong, if that makes sense. Fundamentally, the problem isn't what I've done. It's who I now am. And that forces me to have to hide in a much deeper hole. What they could have known is that they didn't have to run from God, even in their mistakes, failures, an error. But they did not choose that way. So let's keep reading. God called to the man, Adam, where are you? He said, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. 
Uh, catch this, parents. Uh, God's first word towards his kids who had just ruined his creation was not, how could you? It was a, where are you? Did God know where he was? Yes. But was God helping Adam locate himself? Yes. Was God giving Adam the chance to respond to God's loving advances towards him? Yes. He didn't come rolling in. Some of us have this idea of God rolling in like thunder every time we screw up, right? I make a mistake. I mess up. I sin. I break something. I destroy something. I use unkind words. I lie. I cheat. I steal, whatever it is. And God comes rolling in like Thor, right? Like just Adam and Eve were the ones who destroyed his creation originally. And he comes in with a gentleness asking, where are you? Where are you? God said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? The man said, sure did. Nope. The man said, the woman that you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree, and yes, I ate it. He blames the woman, but he's actually blaming God, right? That woman that you gave me, that's, that's your fault, God. You gave me this lady. Not a good strategy. Not, not a good strategy. This is sin, brokenness in the world. Um, God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The serpent seduced me, she said, and I ate it. Uh, these questions that God asked, where are you? Where did that lie come from? Who told you this? And then did you eat the fruit? What did you do? These are the same gentle questions that God can ask us when he chases after us. Hey, where are you, Kevin? Locate yourself. Are you close? Are you far? Are you hiding? Are you running from me? Where are you? Well, God, I'm going away because I don't think that you'll love me anymore because of these things that I've done wrong. Who told you that I wouldn't love you? Where does that lie come from? Identify the lie. And then what's that lie causing you to do? These are great reflective questions for your journal or for your DNA group. The real stuff of life really coming out. With a few questions, the disintegration and death becomes visible. And God's going to have to do something because sin had come into his good creation. And so the story keeps on going. And these are a few different poems that line up. God told the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all of your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will wound your head and you will wound his heel. If you write in your Bible, draw a star by that one. They say that's the first time the good news is preached because, yes, the, the, the serpent is going to wound the heel of the, the descendant of Eve, but the descendant of Eve will one day come and crush that serpent's head. Mark that down. That's kind of a big deal in our story. We're going to keep reading, though. He told the woman, so he turns from the snake now to the woman, I'll multiply your pains in childbirth. You'll give birth to babies in pain. You'll want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over you. A lot of people have taken a stab at what exactly that means. I don't know grammatically, exegetically. I could parse out all the words. I don't know how to tell you in three easy points what that means. I can tell you experientially being in a marriage, it's there. You know what I'm saying? Well, like there is times when it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. When you're like, this thing was created good, but I don't feel it right now. Like, like something feels off in this relationship. Things don't sync up like they were always meant to out of this moment. And then he turns to Adam and he gets a chunk 
of these devastating results because he was the one originally commissioned to care for creation. He's the one who stood silently by while his wife was tempted by the serpent. And he's the one who gave in and was complicit in that instead of crushing the serpent's head and just saying, all right, we're going to wait till God gets here. He walks here in the cool of the day, right? He comes every day. The serpent has something to say. Let's see what he says to God when he shows up. But he let it happen. And this is what God says to the man. Because you listened to your wife, this is where it's important where you take a breath, right? Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit. You don't just stop it because you listened to your wife. Like, that's a, that's a bad idea. Uh, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, don't eat from this tree. Couldn't be more clear. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn till dusk until you return to that ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out as dirt and you'll end up as dirt. Wow. Wow. Uh, can you see why God had said, don't eat from that tree? Uh, much more than me telling a child, don't run into the street. Everything was now polluted with sin. This power had been unleashed in the world that was going to wage war against the ways of God. That brought devastation, destruction, death into creation. So what's he going to do? The chapter winds up. The man known as Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife and dressed them. You're going to need more than fig leaves, bro. God said, the man has become like one of us, capable of knowing everything, ranging from good to evil. What if he now should reach out and take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever? Never. This can't happen. Hear this, God, what he's about to do is absolutely out of love. Even in their destruction of his creation, he still lovingly pursues them and then protects them. He says, I don't want you to live forever this way. So God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they've been made. He threw them out of the garden and stationed an angel cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, which it must have been a gnarly scene guarding the path to the tree of life. Coming out of this, what, what do I want us to do as we look towards the rest of this? I want us to see that sin and its power is a really big deal. Uh, this is just Genesis 3. Genesis 4 through 11 is all of what we consider in the rebellion because in Genesis 4 through 11, we realize that people, individuals, personal choice leads to sinful things. Like we act in ways, humanity act in ways that destroys God's good creation and each other and harms themselves. And then as they build a community, right? So the ripple effect, next ripple, community or systems get formed that then empower and enable injustice in the world. This is Genesis 4 through 11. This is the way it goes. We get to the story of Noah and the flood, right? And God says that every inclination of their heart was always evil. Like human beings, all they did was jacked up. Their heart was always turning from God. They built their society around that. And so he cleanses the world through a flood. And then he makes a new covenant with a new man in a garden, Abraham, who in his lifetime fails right away. And all of a sudden, again, you're like, is this ever going to work out in a good way? It seems like things always go right back downhill to the very fabric of creation or the cosmos. 
bearing the weight of this choice that Adam and Eve had made, that humanity had made to rebel against God. This is a really, really big deal. But catch this, with the depth of sin also increases the display of beauty of the cross. Uh, this painting was uh, on the right when you walked in the door. And in this image, uh, we have it up in our house and Kay's dad was in town. And he's like, what's this about? I know it has to have a meaning. It's up in your house. And it seems like a very particular painting. Like what, what's going on in this story? And in this story, what you see is Eve, who's on the left on your screen, looking out and coming towards Mary on the right of the screen. The snake around her heel, the apple or fruit on the ground. And that look of, of Mary reaching out and holding Eve as if to say, hey, it's going to be okay. The one that's in my belly will make it all right. Yes, sin is a very big deal and it has polluted all of creation, but God is a great savior who brings redemption across all those same arenas that sin has distorted. Personal redemption, beautiful. He rescues us from our sin. Uh, he reforms a new community by the power of the gospel and one day will set all things right in the cosmos. What was happening in that moment can still be rescued and redeemed in the power of Jesus. And so, yes, there's a weightiness that comes with realizing all of the world is fragmented, broken. And we're going to unpack that and see what it looks like. But hear this. We don't live wondering, where, where does this story find its resolution? We look back on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and say, oh, he is the one that was promised, that crushed the serpent's head, that brings redemption and healing and hope. And he's the one that we trust in. We don't need fig leaves. We have a savior. We don't need to earn our way to being made right with God. We have Jesus. And that makes all the difference. So what do I do with this? Wrapping it up, that's a whole lot of stuff. You just gave me seven chapters in the Bible, eight, right? Genesis 3 through 11, kind of a lot. What do I do? Here's my encouragements. Uh, would we be honest about our sin in trusted community? honest about our sin and trusted community. Each one of those words matter. Each of us has proclivities and ways that we hear Jesus telling us to do something and immediately we turn around and do the opposite thing. Every single one of us do that, right? And there have to be people in our lives who know what that is if we're gonna grow up. Like if we wanna grow as followers of Jesus, people need to know where are we likely to sin. But you don't have to put that on Instagram. Like right there, that, that shouldn't be when you come out of here, you just like throw that up on Twitter and like, well, that's me, I'll be honest. No, in trusted community with people that have shown themselves worthy of your trust, that will walk with you over a long period of time and point you back to Jesus, that really matters. I'll recognize the bad news is even worse than you thought. So it's not just that you have a little bit that you've done wrong. Like you're separated from God, far from him. If you're running from him, there's distance there and you can't make it up yourself. That's horrible news. That regardless of your best efforts, you can't make right what's wrong. That's horrible news. It's probably worse than you thought it was walking in here. But repent or, or turn back and remember the good news is better than we even imagined. That when we sin, God moves towards us. When we're stuck and lost and trapped, all words that the Bible uses to talk about sin 
unclean, unable, dead in our sins, Jesus comes towards us and brings life out of what could only be described as confusion and death before. And that is really good news. He brings hope. And we can choose to live in the ways of Jesus, who's described as the second Adam, instead of following after the ways of the first Adam. We have an option. Where will we walk as we're given the opportunity this week? You can go ahead and bow your head. I'm going to pray over us and just want to give us one thought. That breaking sinful patterns takes time. This is why I'm not having you raise your hand right now and say, do you want to be free from sin? You say yes, and then you walk out of here, you trip, fall, curse, and you're like, what just happened? Breaking sinful patterns takes time. It absolutely does. It's disquieting and discomforting. But hear this, fam, if you are leaning towards Jesus, know that Jesus is grabbing towards you and he can bring peace and healing and freedom and forgiveness. When we turn to Jesus and begin to follow his footsteps into healing, into being known, into taking responsibility, but not being crushed by it because Jesus was crushed so we don't have to be, then we can live what he calls kingdom life right now. So Jesus, we ask that you would expose the parts of our hearts that are darkened with the power of sin, things that we turn to, things that might seem neutral, things that we know we're turning towards instead of towards you. Would you just expose that with the beauty of the gentle light that comes from the gospel? God, in the gift of this silence, would we see you in kindness, in gentleness, wanting to expose what is broken so that we can experience life. To tell us that we don't have to go the way of Adam and Eve, but we can go the way of Jesus, which is towards life. And whether we're not following you at all or we've been following you for the most of our lives, there's still areas where we do this. Jesus, would you be kind enough to show us? And then would you cause our hearts to turn towards you in repentance and joy to once again experience the goodness of your salvation. We love you, and we're so glad you meet here with us. We ask this in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.